0: So hello and welcome to another episode of the Latest Shiny Podcast. Uh, I am your host Rob Hirschfeld. Stephen is away doing marketing launchy things uh, today, and we have a special guest that we wanted to go and introduce, uh, Michael Bahan, who is is one of my heroes from the data center provisioning space. Although he's gone on and done other really interesting things, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, The latest is one uh, is is Project Vespine, and so we'll we'll get to that. And then I think we're going to we're going to wrap about open stack, open source, not open stack, source a bit, um, because you have uh, put up some proposals in the uh, current generation of, of open source licensing wars. I so We'll have some fun talking about that. You, can you give us uh, some introduction and tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so I, for some reason or the other, have been doing uh, data center management software for a long time. Um, I started off working for IBM, writing some software for RAID controllers, and uh, by virtue of being an RTP, I ended up well, working for Red Hat for a while, where I wrote a tool called Cobbler, um, which is obviously like a progenitor to the to the rack and stuff, that um, was all about Pixie deployment and how do you manage configurations for, for bare metal systems. Um, and then I also built a tool there called Funk, which was kind of a orchestration, very early orchestration over message, uh, XMALRC actually, uh, communication layer. Um, Then some other intermediate systems management places along the way, and then I think most significantly, uh, I I started the Ansible project around 2012 as kind of a, I'm sort of fed up with a lot of the ways that we're doing configuration management. Are there perhaps better approaches to doing this? And uh, Ansible got to be pretty big, and uh, Vespine is my my new thing where I'm attempting to take some of those lessons from Ansible and apply those to making a better CICD build automation tool.
0: Um, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. That is a very significant uh, uh, resume in, in pieces. And it, it's one of the things that amazes me, just you know, going back to the cobbler days, is that that software is still in use. People are still building significant infrastructures around cobbler they're not not as happily anymore because it's not particularly actively maintained but uh that there's a you know a significant number of the server boots in uh are are managed by cobbler still nice track record and ansible is just own amazing thing um and so we should decide i want to actually focus on investing first because i i you know, I, I told me we're the first ones to sort of get let you get a chance to talk about it and, and walk through what what it means. So you know, I, I definitely want to get get there um, at some point if you want and we have time. We can talk about you know what it takes to start a project. Maybe that'll be our segue to open source. That would be great. Yeah. So, so, um, so good. go ahead. I was going to say, can you get so not you know give us a, a best in a nutshell.
1: Right. Right. So. Um... I think the the, is, the idea was to basically take the approach that I've started Ansible. Like if you look at an application and you you see it's too complicated, can you can you take it apart, boil it down to the most basic elements, um, and and start a new architecture and an architecture that allows because you've approached it from a new direction allows for some interesting surprises along the way. So um, everything, uh, something that you find in absolutely every software development shop is some kind of build server. So there's there's Jenkins and there's Travis and uh, you know there's a lot of other you know some proprietary options. There's uh, uh, Jenkins is obviously the one the big one that most people have. Um, but what I had noticed is I had a lot of friends that were uh, effectively maintaining Jenkins instances, and every time I, I heard uh, I talked to them, they were always fighting with something about it. Like there's been this really long page of twenty seven thousand checkboxes, or they're having trouble running plugins or something like that. And my thought process. Well, it's not really that hard to build one of these tools. Could um, I make one that would perhaps have some more capabilities and maybe be, over time, a bit more interesting? And uh, going back to that kind of that open source idea, um, if you make things modular and really pluggable with the right architecture, sometimes you can get surprised by how quickly you can build some of those things. Uh, whereas um, if, a, if, a, if a software stack has been around 10 years, sometimes it can be... Uh, a little bit harder to add to uh, not to take away any of the credit from any of those projects. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're absolutely fantastic what they've accomplished.
0: Um, well, I, I think that's a, what I would call it an architectural yeah. impedance question, right? You're, you you know, things, things do develop over time and they, they build up a miss, you know, they, they, keep, they work really well at the time. They have those simple designs. You're, you're suggesting uh, sometimes it's very hard to sort of keep turning the knobs and fixing something, looking at the architecture as the, is the right starting point.
1: Yeah, sometimes. So one of the things that I learned from just trying things open source and and doing a lot of Python is uh, the open source projects seem to excel the best when the contributor base and the uh, developer base overlap at a really high rate, right? So uh, historically uh, systems administrators, for instance, are not uh, classically going to be Java developers, right? So what happens then is you see projects that are written in some of those more heavier uh, architectural languages um, and systems. Uh, the people that work on them are typically professional developers paid to work on those applications. So uh, there hadn't been, as far as I know, a build system written in Python, and especially not one in Django. So I just kind of wanted to start one and see what would happen. Um, and because of essentially really basic things, uh, not, it hasn't ever really been my... One of my open source project f- focuses in the, in the past, but uh, all the proprietary software I've written, I've done a lot of uh, you know boring CRUD web apps and, and REST API stuff. And uh, that means REST API isn't available just yet. But uh, the idea was, you know, well, what if we start out with you know this really basic concept, like this build system is going to have a database, right? Um, how does that make things easier? And it turns out it makes things a heck of a lot easier if you start with the right object model and you build off of it. So, like just for example, I wrote an autoscaler last night or two nights ago, right? It only took like a day to build an autoscaler for for build workers, and I can imagine how much that might have um, initially hand-strung an application that wasn't designed like that way to start with.
0: Right. Well, th- from that perspective, are you saying that you know? It was time to add the autoscaler. I'm assuming you thought about. you assumed you needed it in the design. Yeah, it? to an extent,
1: right? Um, so, like, the, one of the main things about Vespin is that it is horizontally scalable. So every everything is, you know, basically you know transactional and stateless. It shares a common database. Uh, the workers are all identical to each other, and the workers are just you know serving named queues. So um, yeah, it was always intended to be that level of, you know, horizontally scalable, but, um, I guess like there were some other design decisions that were, I think, interesting. So one of the other things that happened was I was working at this one shop and they had a very, very microservice deployment. Um, they were, they were pushing Amazon harder than anyone I've ever seen. Um, so they had maybe hundred, hundred and fifty microservices. And what would happen is for all these services, they'd have They'd have test jobs and they'd have deployment jobs and so on. But uh, as each self-service team would go in there and update their build configurations, they would start to drift over time, right? So everybody's build scripts didn't necessarily do the same things in the same way. So, uh, you know, going back to Cobbler, I took some of the, the, uh, the old snippet idea from Cobbler of like how can you uh, template build configs uh, and that uh, system of variables and overrides and things like that. Um, and you can you can take advantage of those templates to uh, make your build scripts more consistent. Um,
0: so so I think that's that's and the and the, temp, the temp, templating is huge, right? I, I think people who haven't looked through um, and and I do we do a lot of GoLang, and so we use GoLang templating, um, right? And that Ansible's you know, was was basically built around the the two templating infrastructure. It's, it's it's as core to the system as you can get. So, so the, the idea that these templates are basically uh, populated is a, is, a, is a big part of how you built this, that's for sort of the idea? And why, why templating? Why do you, why do you see templating as so powerful?
1: Well, um, I mean, it's, it's just the case of what, what we kind of saw was that every team sort of, when they modify their scripts, they start to do something different. So if you have a, uh, say you're using a particular you know, mirror and you want to upload a package to a mirror, if you can define a snippet that takes some certain variables and you can just drop that in your build script, uh, you can ensure that everybody in, you know, 200 different build scripts is always using that same copy of that, you know, that little tiny piece of shell code, right? Um, and that somebody's not forgetting a new flag or if the security team comes along and wants to change something, they have the ability to change that in the build system. I mean, we've had that in infrastructure code systems for years, but we really haven't had... Uh, Tools that allowed you to keep the build system in line.
0: We with the templating that we use, that it, it's very easy to people to understand how templates work, build functional systems, and then you know, yeah, exactly what you're just saying. Commit them into code as part of your build infrastructure, and that that would be a huge deal. Sometimes yeah, build infrastructure working. Like is that
1: you have uh, you have .dot vspine files in your your Git repositories? If you want, you don't have to have them. But we can scan your GitHub and then automatically pull in all the projects with files and they can, you know, they can set up your build. So you can still keep that build script and source control. But when it's evaluated, we, we plug in all the templating that's, that's centralized to make sure that you kind of have that consistency. But yeah, uh, Ginger 2 has been amazing for Ansible and I, I'm using it again, being straight up. I forget what uh, what Cobbler used in the end, but uh, it's, it's pretty much, you know, you can build all kinds of things with it the way that you can pass in various.
0: I was, I, I, when, when we were working on the digital rebar stuff, we, we'd get people saying, but the cobbler templates are so handy and they make sense to me. And part of our redesign was ultimately to just say, all right, that works. People understand it. Um, and we, you know, we, we pulled the way it works for the conceptual pieces, not the templates themselves, um, over. So it's, I think it's important for people to understand just how powerful and fundamental this is as a building block. And it's funny because looking at the website, the uh, templating pieces did not come out to me as essential as you as you're describing them.
1: It. Yeah, it's tricky to come up with ways to explain projects, right? And they they kind of evolve over time. <laughs> basic survey, like why are you interested in this, and have you tried these things, and what are the most interesting things? Um, I don't know if it was it was necessarily fundamental. So one of the other things I wanted to do. Was make it really easy for people that are using existing automation systems to interact with the build server. So, so many people are launching all their configuration management tools from something like Jenkins, right? So, uh, vespin has I- embedded SSH agent support, so you can uh, teach it your your private keys and so on. It can hold on to them for you, and then when you run a build that either needs to do a checkout from something with SSH or it needs to SSH into you know thirty or hundred systems. Um, you can, you can manage those credentials through the system itself. That is especially powerful with the feature that we have called launch questions. So you can make a, a different kind of template. Um, this isn't actually based on Jinja, uh, but uh, you can have it ask you multiple choice and fill in the blank questions. And then, then the variables that you get from those questions can be subbed, in, subbed into your build job. So if you have something like you know, set the cache size to X, right? You can make a really easy self-service job, control who exactly can run this. Maybe the support team is allowed to run it in prod, but not the developers. right? Um, And then all these features kind of start to kind of plug together and they have this uh, kind of, I don't want to say synergy, but maybe synergy where um, Hmm. those those, those questions plug into the template system and they they work with the SSH system. And then pretty soon you've got this end-to-end thing. So we're, you know, we talk about Jenkins, but you know, like it also kind of provides solutions in the same vein as you know, something like Rundeck, right? Which is uh, more of a console you think about just for running those kind of self service jobs, but you wouldn't think of it as a build system. So another theme that I kinda like to do is can I try to replace two tools with one sometimes, right? And so Vespine is a very uh, has a lot of kind of ops magic in it that is a little bit more at the forefront than, you know, some of the other build tools. So not everybody figures out, you know, that the Jenkins could be that because they have to go hunt plugins and so on. But it's it's definitely at the forefront of best uh, being in, in its documentation.
0: So from that perspective, right, you've got a series of workers. The workers, because it's a build system, have to do a degree of configuration. That configuration changes throughout the life of that build, right? So are, are you considering a build? You're not just, you know, the old days... We, you know, in the dark ages, we would consider a build just, I need to create binaries and then and stuff them somewhere. What you're describing is a workflow um, where, or a deployment flow might be a better way to describe it, where you're yeah. going through different stages and then ultimately it can land in, you know, if it passes these gates, it can it can end up in, in deployment and production. Is that is that what you see best in being able to manage it?
1: Yeah, we have, we have a pipeline feature, just like, um, many build systems do where one, one build can trigger another one, but a build is just an execution of a script and it can optionally be associated with the source control checkout. So get this from, pull this out or forget, uh, run this script in, in the, in the directory and so on. Um, and then maybe trigger some builds when you're done, right? So there's a, there is a, there is an optional flow there. And then the, the actual so I mean it's it's a general work engine kind of, I think if you think about it that way, but it's only going to be used for you know a couple of different use cases. Uh, but the builds themselves right now are isolated with either sudo or inside a container image. Uh, so the builds actually happen inside a Docker build command and then the the values are copied back out. Um, but then that's all everything is like really highly pluggable. So I mean I think that's another a really interesting feature. There's like eight types of plugins right now and it's it's only three months old, but
0: yeah, um, that <laughs> types type of, plug-in. of plugins. Okay, that's a lot of different types of plugins. How do you what, what makes a plugin a plugin?
1: Um, so the the idea was just like any sort of business logic somebody might want to replace. So let's support different types of source control, right? So the Git plugin is pretty good because Git has ninety six percent of the, the market, right? But just to prove I could do it, there's a Subversion plugin in there, if somebody else wants to add something else, they're welcome to it.
0: So the, there's have, one API. For plug-ins. Okay, I was I was confused. So you have one API for plugins. You you've created a handful of plugins so far, and you'll keep adding to the the plugins. Yeah, not, like there's three different, 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 different ways to do yeah. things. Or sorry,
1: um, yeah, there's like eight separate types of plugins. So uh, for instance, triggers that I execute when a build when a build about to happen and mm. when a build finishes successfully or non-successfully. Um, so we have like we have a Slack plugin that can notify in Slack. But if somebody else wants to write another one for HipChat, they could do that. Um, The entire variable system, the entire hierarchy of where it gets variables for the templates is technically pluggable. So like if somebody had a key value store and they just randomly want to make all the variables from their key value store available in the templating engine, uh, that's doable with, you know, chances are 10 lines of code. Organizational imports, like what we do to suck in uh, repositories from GitHub in the auto import process, that's pluggable. So if somebody wanted to add GitLab server or whatever, they can they do those kind of things, right? So it was pretty much the, the idea was every time you think somebody might want to change the way that something behaves, make it a plugin, and then try to ship as many of those good plugins in the core distribution so people don't have to hunt for them, right? So this batteries included idea that kind of came but little bit, tempered down a bit because we don't want, you know, a thousand plugins. We really just want the
0: ones people want. Plugin for you looks like a Python library. What is, what is the delivery unit for a plugin?
1: Yeah, it's just um it's just a Python library. So the way that it works is there is um it's you know just old school settings.d configuration. You basically list out the the path to every library you want. So you could say uh, load something from Vespi.net plugins. you could disable some of the core plugins, or you know, if you have your own site, you could you could have your own package anywhere. You don't have to check it into the tree. But it's just a, it's just a Python class with um, you know, a, co- a common interface. So you can copy any one of the existing ones. And there's a, if you go to the documentation page, which is like docs.vespin.io, there's there's a whole list of all the plugins that are in there. And you can kind of just like look at the paths in the source tree to kind of figure out how they work. There's a plugin for annotating the logs that like the elapsed time in front of every line in the build. And if you don't like that, you could turn it off. Or if you're, uh, you know, you don't like the format, you could replace it with something else.
0: All, all kinds of stuff like that. And this, to me, is one of the, one of the interesting benefits of, of using Python as your base is that the system itself can be you know, pieced together uh, dynamically from libraries. Uh, the work we've been doing with Go, which we love, means that it's, there's, it can't do that, that same dynamic linking. And so like for us, the plugins had to be HTTP interface uh, type, of person, which has its own benefits and compromises, so it's interesting. Interesting choice. Yeah, sure. Python, do you, so do you expect, you know, this will go back to something you said earlier, about using a, a tool set and a programming language that allows the people who you want to be developing to be contributors, the, that, that plug-in ability means that you're expecting people who are using Vespin to be able to extend it and then contribute pieces directly back, even without a lot of you know, development experience. Yeah, I don't
1: I don't like want everybody to have to know Python but um, I kind of like projects that encourage people to learn so like even going back to like cobbler there was there were systems administrators who were like hey I know Perl but this is in Python if you write the code in a way that's kind of meant to be easily understandable and like well organized enough you can kind of help people learn and introduce them how to do that um, it's definitely a challenge here because a lot of people are you know very familiar with maybe writing, uh, Amazon scripts and, and Bodo, but uh, this might be everybody's first exposure to Django web development, right? So how can you do things in a way that's easy to understand and document them and uh, make it easy enough to work on? So I've spent, I don't know how many hours on, on documentation, but uh, Sphinx and Python is a really good project for, for laying that out, and uh, there's always going to be more added. So kind of want people yeah, to understand just, that we can be
0: add to Sphinx. it if they want to. Sphinx, yeah. Sphinx is... Sphinx. Sphinx is amazing. If you're working on a project and not using RST and Sphinx, then you're you stop what you're doing. Fix it. Yeah. That.
1: Awesome. I tried to get working in Markdown. It wasn't so wasn't so successful, but uh it's it's worth putting up with the restructured text just to get everything else against you, for sure. Uh,
0: we we actually spent some time and actually started doing cross-references and, and things like that. And oh my goodness, I love. Like we vary cross-references in in all over the place, and it makes the docs very, very lengthy you can't do that without a big without space to be able to compile everything into a unit
1: um, yeah it adds a lot more than just what's just in like the restructured sex specification and like those are all like special sphinx things and uh, I I've said it before but I think like documentation is really how projects make it or they don't right and it's like you, different people have all these different learning styles and they want to explore things in a different way so how can you make the documentation kind of a uh, kind of a choose your own adventure thing where people can explore what they want but also be made aware of interesting features that they might not otherwise know about. And there's, you know, it's it's really hard to get that right.
0: That's where, you know, we used to document projects with wikis and oh my God, the dead link problem. And, and right, it was just, it was just a mess. And I, I felt like, you know, RST and GitHub, especially alongside the project code, translated into an improvement, um, a big improvement actually. You still have dead links and the whole stuff, but it's easier. Yeah, at least we'll warn you about those. I I had a question. I want to talk about microservices, but before that, REST. So why why no REST API right from the start? How do how do you manage to have a a, a build pipeline without a REST API?
1: Yeah. Um. So there's there's why that technically works, and then there's uh, should it have one. The answer to should it have one is definitely yes. But Vespine started about three months ago, and in, in the process of getting it going, I really wanted to spend time on Getting the object model and the backend right and everything, um, and not have to, uh, maintain a bunch of, you know, extra stuff, knowing that I've done REST API stuff so many times before, it would be easy to add in a, in a few days or whatever, right? So, I mean, this is interesting and perhaps a little bit controversial, but, um, you know, previously at Ansible, we had a, a product that was, uh, you know, a single page web app and we had a, you know, you have to have an entire team of, of people writing that web interface, and then there's, there's the backend and all that. Um, so vespi is actually built on Django Forms. Uh, there's actually a library called Django Crispy Forms that makes it a little bit better. So it gets you uh, tabs and a little better styling, and it's just using rapid font awesome. So we're driving the entire web interface off of, I'm going to get it wrong if I guess, but maybe there's like 200 lines of template code. And then all the forms. Just code generated automatically from from the data model. The development speed is to add like a new field is incredibly, incredibly fast. And that's just been super productive. So I don't think we're ever going to go single page web app, you know, React, Angular, REST API to the back end. Uh, but probably the one thing that the REST API makes good sense for is like a command line tool, right? Uh, which everybody would want to be able to like, hey, I want to generate some reports or, or interact or kick a build or something like that. Um, but the workers, um, this is actually kind of an interesting hack and it might change over time or it might become pluggable, but right now they're just talking to the database. So,
0: um, Ah, okay. I, I, this, that, that was what I was kind of like, all right, so you know, the place where yeah. we ended up needing a lot of APIs and really drove our REST APIs was that the, the agents needed a, need, need a protocol. And so you're, you're relying on the database a database connection?
1: Yeah, they do. So there's a there's a build table. So when we decide a project needs to get built, we just create a build object with status equals queued, and we fill in mm-hmm. things like the template evaluation of the script, which can happen really quick in the lifecycle of a request. And what happens is we just uh, we look for the next build in a worker pool, and the workers in the pool know what queue they serve. So they say if if the, if the queue is named like Ubuntu, right, it says give me the highest build that I need to build on Ubuntu. It pops it off. It moves that state from queued to running. Um, and then it can just, it can just have at it. And then when it gets done, it updates the status back in the database. So, uh, Python has a pretty good, uh, jobs management library called Celery. But in the past, I've had some problems with Celery, uh, with like getting stale jobs in the table and I really wanted to keep it easy for administrators. So it turned out that like just rewriting the the pieces that you needed to do, uh, you know, job queuing in the database was much easier than, you know, teaching somebody to maintain Celery and deal with, uh you know, that level of complexity. So um, when you start the agent, uh, we're just starting them with supervisors so you can run multiple workers on the same machine. It handles all your log rotation for you. And you typically start them with SSH agents so that they can have all the the magic in logging into systems and using SSH keys. But there's really no, really hardly anything to the worker code, uh, which which was, I think, really nice. so. So
0: you can scale the workers out and then the workers can then attach to an actual machine Virtual machine somewhere to do to actually run the builds and take care of the action. Or can you can the workers actually do the builds also?
1: The workers do the builds, right? So okay. a worker is just a, a Python process, and you can run as many as you want on as many different queues as you want. Um, and oh. if if you want to have different build environments and you don't want to worry about installing the workers, they also support uh, you know Docker image builds. I kind of kind of mentioned that a little bit before. So mm-hmm. you can say that this build. Needs to work inside the image of this container, and it, we can suck down that from your uh, your container registry and do the build inside that environment. So if you're if you're 100 Linux shop, you only really need one type of worker because uh, the container isolation will uh, let you choose whatever base image you want. But if you had uh, you know really different platforms, you might want to maintain some uh, maybe one of them maintain some different workers.
0: So I have I have one more question. I there's there's I feel like we could go an hour. Uh, talking through the architecture but the one thing you said um, I want to I want to ask about because you talked about microservices and and, and one of the reference case studies that you did for this was somebody with just a tangle of microservices is there something you're doing specifically to sort of say look I can I have a whole bunch of microservices in my in my pipeline I don't need to to thin up every one of them or I don't want to tear down ones that I you know that if I'm not testing that, if, if you have some way that you help control microservice test sprawl, if that's the so, way that you're that phrase. So
1: control is really just in terms of the templates right now. So the idea that there's going to be some common steps, so let's assign some snippets of variables and make sure that the build scripts kind of maintain the same. But no, there's really not, um, there's not a lot of intelligence about leaving a service up for testing and testing that kind of large environment could be complicated, right? So we've got pipeline, uh, kind of the bare primitives, but it's something you have to wrangle yourself. And I, I think a lot of people do, uh, my personal opinion, I think they tend to make their services architectures too complicated. And if they looked more at code sharing and having less layers of their stack, it might even be more efficient. It might even scale out better. Um, but obviously microservices are a good solution to uh, problems where teams don't want to, you know, be subject to the code review of 100 people at one one time, right? People want to break things up, and and that's understandable, but it it comes at a complexity cost.
0: And that's what I I remember, you know, talking to people doing build for CNCF team. I remember talking to the OpenStack build team. Um, Both projects have a lot of different services and components, and they they typically build and spin up all of the services for every test, um, even if some of those services really haven't changed. In the building question, and so it's so there's a, a balance right between you know, keeping the service running for testing and then polluting it, which is also a problem. You know, those those are those are challenges versus you know the cost of having to do a whole bunch of spin ups for a test yeah, that might only be um, testing kind five of percent of
1: the of the code path. Yeah, so the the environment that I, I kind of thought about when I was building Vespin was a very microservices heavy environment what they did and I kind of agree with that is just maintain a stage environment that looks exactly like production except maybe scaled down a little bit maybe the, the tuning on your load balancers is smaller and just always be pushing out the latest into stage and then maybe there's a separate job where you you run your tests against stage so your're very functional your very integration tests and they'll just hit whatever's out there at the time right
0: um,
1: good. If that, you know they're like fully continuous deployment of everything against all the latest versions that can get that could get pretty complicated pretty
0: fast. Ah, I, yeah. I, I, as much as I feel like we've made a huge amount of progress in tests and, and pipelines, we know that we're just at, the, at the, <laughs> the very beginning of that iceberg and there's a lot more we can do. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that we, we said we were going to talk about is this open source licensing concept. Um, I'm interested just in your sense of the industry, you know, are we are we changing the way we think about open source licenses? Is there a crisis with like Mongo and uh, Redis or not?
1: Yeah. Um, so for those that aren't quite familiar with that, I think the, the the main concern with Redis was Amazon was taking all their bits and making a lot of money off Redis, right? Or or wanted to, uh, and Redis wasn't really getting compensated, right? So there's some extremely large you know companies that are essentially monopolies that that pressure uh, that gets put on smaller software companies can make it very difficult for them to, to, you know, have a business. Right. So, um, when I started this project, I I knew that I didn't want to write proprietary software because I don't enjoy it. Right. I like working with people. I think it makes potentially better software. I find it really rewarding and, you know, be engaged in the community, but I didn't want, uh, you know, that kind of problem to come along where, my goodwill of, of focusing completely on the open source meant that because I didn't create this other adjacent hosted service or this uh, proprietary software on the side, um, somebody else was going to do it first, right? So that, that's the that's the really really
0: tricky proposition. So many people, like, well, you're, you're not you're not you're not a castle made of gold uh, doing this. out of, You're writing software out of, out of complete goodwill. There, 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 you do have some expectation that that Obscane is is useful and and that, that somebody using it in production, there it, it will be some something coming back to you. Is that a fair... Yeah, yeah. So You're not writing software for goodwill alone.
1: Um, well, I mean, I, I enjoy it, and I, I don't think that everybody needs to pay for it, but my thought was, and this is the experimental, uh, can we come up with a way that says if people are uh, making a giant amount of consulting revenue, I don't want to get any money from small consultants, and I, I've completely waived that from my, my structure, but because uh, they're they're also fantastic contributors and great people. Um, mm-hmm. but if you think about the you know HP or Net Accenture and stuff like that, uh, but more so the you know the IBMs and the Googles, these really, really big organizations, uh, can you encourage them to support the development of the products that they use? And for so long we've had distributions that have you know packaged up people's software and not compensated those people for it. Um, and I think there's kind of a, a, this race to the bottom where eventually that, that causes people to not open source software, right? So um, I'm interested in trying to find ways where that maybe we can encourage people that are making tons of money to give back a very small amount and, and you know, kind of help support that project. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do with structuring uh, kind of a little partner program around this team But it's going to be free for commercial use for anybody at their place of business. But it's like if you're consulting or you're trying to run a hosted uh, build cloud off of it, uh, I don't want to be writing all my software for free, and then uh, you're just making money off of it, right? So it's a tricky proposition. We want to make sure that everybody that contributes has their um, knows what we're doing up front, and that we're we're helping them out, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship. But I think that the the arrow kind of has gone too far. And you know, like if I was trying to make money on a project, and there's nothing wrong with this, but there's a basically everyone assumes that you have to be writing proprietary software to want to invest in you. And uh, I'm interested in seeing if we can find other ways that keeps more software open if we can. Um, but it's it's kind of the state of the industry right now. Everybody says, uh, you know, open source is better, but yet they won't pay you for it. So like, can we find a balance? Right. And, and it's going to be an interesting experiment.
0: Boy, there's a lot to unpack on that. And I, I think, there's a couple layers, so I want, to, I want Let me ask some some fast questions first, and <laughs> see if we could. So, do you believe fundamentally that that people who get or get value from software should pay for it? Right. There's the free part of open source is not monetary. Is that uh, um, should people get or right, um, Not always. There's like different ways of giving back. Right. So people
1: um, just sharing, you know, the tool with other people and increasing that community of knowledge is fantastic. People. Uh, adding documentation people writing blog posts those are all kinds of contribution beyond code code is obviously great testing is great uh, but in general I think that if you are benefiting a lot from the open source community you should be obligated to be giving back something even if it's open sourcing your own applications right that's how that that community gets bigger um, but that that I think a lot of people have looked at it as as it was just uh, you know lowercase free right so everyone's um, I don't have to pay for this, but yet I can still order this project around on GitHub and act like I'm a customer. Um, so right. it's tricky, right? Um, we don't want to say that contributions are, are aren't aren't enough because they are, but that as as companies get large and companies are making large amounts of money off other people's work, I think they have an oper- they have a, an obligation to see that, right? So if you're a project and you uh, you make a whole lot of money off of something that's based on Django. Uh, how are you giving back and supporting Django, right? Be, be thinking about that. Are you, are you giving some developer time? Are you, um, you know, what can you do there, right? Python, other, other sorts of things. And I, I think it's actually much worse down the stack. So I have some friends at, uh, at Tidelift, right? And they're trying to find ways to support, uh, things like, for example, in the JavaScript ecosystem that I think everybody just assumes are, are free, but, a lot of uh, volunteer hours go into
0: making that. Uh, and and Tidelift Lift had actually, uh, the CEO of Todd Lift had a very powerful assessment of some of the Red Hat uh, open source IBM acquisition pieces that, that's worth going to look up if people are interested in, in that. Part of one of the distinguishing factors in here is small team versus foundation, right? Are you, you know, your history includes basically very powerful open source projects. It started with small teams. Is that you know, do you think that, uh, comp, you know, that that the team or the company that initiated a project need, should you know, ultimately has to lose control of it, or is it important to have a you know, sort of a, a master plan or a master driver to protect the project? Yeah. That, um, that work? Yeah.
1: So I, I do believe in small teams, right? Um, I think that the analogy that I typically tried to use before is kind of like one of collaborative painting. Right. So I'm not to, not to draw analogies that I, that I have that level of skill, but if you think of like um, any sort of like Renaissance masterwork painting, right. Usually that was painted by one person because they had a, you know, they had a particular style in mind. Right. And the good companies that I think have done the best uh, at, you know, maintaining style have been ones that have had this, you know, kind of, you know, visionary kind of leadership at the helm, right? So uh, like, and and again, not trying to draw parallels at all, but, uh, you know, like Steve Jobs at Apple and despite, you know, occasionally crazy comments, Elon Musk, right? So those kind of things would not have necessarily been possible in my opinion, if they were, you know, complete foundational democracies because what happens is everybody sort of brings their own ideas and you kind of get an an average. So um, in terms of like the whole software diaspora, I kind of like to see, um, everybody come up with the flavors that makes their own thing their thing, um, and that when you start a community, you kind of define upfront how that that structure and that governance is going to work, I and mean, you know the kind of and as, if people are comfortable with that, they'll contribute if they're on the same page. But trying to please everyone, I think ends up sometimes pleasing no one, right? Because you you uh, you split your, your attention, you try to do too much, and you kind of deviate from that that Unix philosophy of of doing a few things well. right?
0: Um, yeah, this to me is one of the ironies of, of companies, why companies should pay for software. They're actually paying for a guardian and they might not realize it, that a project that you know, you end up uh, forking or you end up with you know, diluting with a whole bunch of companies owning, you, you end up with poor guardianship, which is the other side of what you're describing to me. Um, and then the project can get really complex or it can start moving really slowly um, or it can just create, you know, it can, it can lose its focus and mission on, on how it operates and you can add things in that, that stop making the mission as easy to use. Um, yeah, and I think that's the hard part that people don't realize
1: is that uh, contribution is super wonderful. It, it's great and I love it, but you have to have somebody that's kind of steering that and then moderating all the attention and, and you're keeping sh- making sure that stuff's tested, right? Because a lot of times, uh, open source contribution is very much about itch scratching. So someone will fix their problem, but they don't really know about the other problems they might have introduced or it might have not affected them, right? And they're busy. They have other work to do. So if somebody has their their full-time job to pay attention to this thing, they can keep after, uh, you know, kind of keep after the larger picture and kind of keep it working for everybody. Um,
0: so yeah, that's, and that's an, an interesting ecosystem thing. I saw that, right, going back to, to your history with Ansible. As Ansible Galaxy formed, people created... And hundreds of variants of certain popular playbooks. Uh, and there was no referee sort of saying, yeah, all, you know, all right, we don't need 20 or 100 uh, Mongo or Redis um, you know, playbooks or Cassandra play-. you know, it, it, it got so insane. And then a lot of them, once that itch was scratched or that utility was made, they abandoned it and there was no, there was no maintenance.
1: Yeah, there's there's kind of a tragedy of the commons that, that can exist there. Um, Galaxy was was necessary because everybody wanted to look at other people's playbooks, right? But on the other hand, I always thought the the core contribution should be in having a a reasonable number of modules, not too many that they were hard to maintain, but and then make it easier for people to write their own. So get everybody to collaborate on the core building blocks, you know, the things that make the grocery list, but everybody can write their own grocery list, and so you don't really need other people's grocery lists, right? Bad analogy, but uh, it's, no, it's, it's, it's kind of too much content.
0: because I, I would take it one step further. Because if you're going to go have a you know, shopping service that you know, then shops for hundred people, they're going to reorganize that and they're going to optimize it to do you know, they're, they're going to do optimizations, which is what vendors do, right? Vendors are trying to reduce their costs, so they don't want a hundred grocery lists. They want a way to deal with, you know, 50, you know, 10 types of grocery lists, and they'll help you. And you might not get exactly what you want, but it's over time, it's going to be more efficient. Uh, and that's what it takes to sustain these projects. And so it's it's an interesting balance. I like I like what you're saying here, which is let people learn how to use the software, not have them worry about paying commercials or getting tied up in that when they start reaching a threshold where they've made it essential for their business, right. If it's their consulting business or a hosting business, then at that point they need to be sustaining the project in a monetary way.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it, it benefits them. So it's not, I mean, I think a lot of people look at that as like, Hey, you're trying to make profit off the software you write, that's wrong. And then I, then I look at it and I'm like, did you ever think that somebody's paying you? Right. Um, but it also makes that software better and, it, and it's in your interest. So how can we create those relationships that are like mutually beneficial, um, versus just like, hey, I'm trying to sell you something,
0: right? The other one that, that has me scratching my head when, when we work with open source people, and I, I know you're gonna, you're seeing this as you're launching this new project, you have to get somebody, you know, people have to start using it, but if you build it into your your core business, right? You know, as soon as Destiny becomes somebody's build pipeline uh, for the stuff we do, it becomes part of their, their data center infrastructure, they should be thinking through how that software is being sustained. Um, and how they're part of sustaining it. Um, and I think that that's that to me is where open source has sort of fall. You know, we don't have the cultural norms for it, maybe. I, I, I don't think it's a license problem. I think it's a, a IT culture problem. Where, where do you fall on how we encourage people to pay for software that they don't have to pay for? Yeah,
1: it's it's tricky because I mean a lot of times you pay for an enterprise version of something, and the the people that are doing the enterprise version aren't really in touch with the, the main project, or it doesn't really get you anything that like you you didn't get really much capability beyond the command line. So, gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like I'm I'm trying to not charge commercial users. So if you're making a business and you've got a pet store and you want to use Vetspine, you're it's totally fine, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry about that at all. But I think I just encourage people to get involved with some some projects on their spare time and can you encourage employers to say hey we like if say you're using Jenkins right if you're using Jenkins uh maybe it, it makes some time makes some sense to spend some of your time you know working on some Jenkins plugins for some people and and you know becoming a member of that community of the other projects that you use and maybe that keeps some of it up but yeah it's it's, it's an interesting thing so uh, there's a lot of advocates for the concept of free software, but there's, there's less people among those advocates that really do give back a lot. Right. And uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, but I, I mean, I, I love it. You have to take, take, take with it when it comes, but uh, you get a lot of, you get to meet a lot of nice people. You can meet a lot of great ideas and for like, uh, like really good product management ideas and, and uh, meeting a lot of people with interesting use cases, you, uh, you can get out in the world in ways that you couldn't, if you had to have, you know, a, a sales team and,
0: and all kind of good stuff so and, uh, and also with with hidden code right and and there is a model that that says i opened my code but it was I, you know not i kept the license but i i don't you know and you could you could definitely have an open open code air quotes open but a commercial still under a commercial license and maybe that would encourage some community but there's another dynamic there where people feel like they can build around, you know, communities around an open source project because they can trust the the code will be there even if the, the maintainers are not. Although I, I don't know if that's how that works out. And you have a history where Cobbler was able to sustain itself you know, well, through how multiple, multiple multiple sessions of abandonment. Yeah. Uh, multiple sessions of, um, sorry? Multiple sessions of abandonment. <laughs> Some of the times when uh, I looked at Cobbler, uh, it was like, uh, ah, it's gone. we you know there's nobody, there's nobody reviewing code and taking commits and, right. And then Maybe it comes but, back and somebody. <laughs> like, Maybe they should look at your project. I always encourage that. But, and that, but that's right. But even for us, right. You could, you could say, all right, what happens if Rackend's not there? You know, can I count on, you know, at least you can download and compile the code and keep it running. And you, I could easily see a time where somebody, you know, Rackend says, all right, we can't make a go of it. It's still out there. And then you. Somebody shows up you know at a big company somewhere and they're like, "This is really useful i just I'm gonna patch and maintain it and and it picks back up a life. I don't see that happen as much. I think that's a i i think that's more of a fantasy for people
1: yeah I don't know if that that abandonment problem happens too much like I remember back in the day everybody was worried about forking, but forking doesn't happen that much either right so um no, it really doesn't I think what does happen is people come up with new incompatible versions for things a lot, and you know we gotta we gotta work on that but uh
0: they do. And that's, it's, it's really hard. I, I see that with, with a lot of the Docker yeah. Kubernetes stuff. And then we, we do need to wrap up and i, I saw will little soapbox too much on that. But a lot of the people doing, you know, containerized workloads or sort of the burn the bridges behind you mentality. Yeah, you know, I, I wish we, we helped people build bridges a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I saw some comments somewhere that, and I didn't necessarily agree with the statement, but it was like, um, we're going to adopt this and then we're just going to assume it's going to work in three years. Like with the the assumption that it didn't work now, Ooh. but they were you're jumping all in. and We're going to wait for the technology to materialize, and uh,
0: yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, and, and there, yeah, we we I've seen that in in projects I play in where they they build a critical mass momentum or they market it super hard, and then they they realize that version one didn't actually work the way they wanted. Oops, here's version two, and that's super. I mean, you're you're a big Python fan, so. The switching between version two and version three of Python has been a you know lifelong project, right? It
1: it's uh, I'm, I'm writing Python three code now because it's a completely new project. But because of you know distributions, we had it, it it held Ansible back forever, right? So we couldn't really yeah. use it. We had this we had Python three code that we needed to run on a node, and I, I think the, the the probably the right answer should be you just have to install Python three. But there's a lot of people in for an ops tool who didn't mm-hmm. want to do that and. Yeah, it, it's it's tricky, but I, th- I think they managed that one pretty well, right? It's uh, the compatibility is not that bad for a programmer um, once once you, but it's a little bit bad if you're shipping installed software that has to just use the OS Python. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're in a post distro world now, I think, where everybody's comfortable with installing packages from everywhere. Uh, sometimes that's not a good thing, where they're just like, "Hey, I'll get this off GitHub, the latest version, and not have versions." I think Go is kind of sorting that out now, right? But People uh, are just problem. Everything had to be packaged in RPM.
0: I can I can sense Stephen like not just growling at me about time, but <laughs> actually being, like trying to shoot laser beams. We do need to wrap it up. Where do people go to hear about you, read about Vespine, the interact interact with the community?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, Vespine.io, V-E-S-P-E-N-E.io. There's also a discur- discourse forum on talk.vespine.io and docs.vespine.io is the docs and uh Yeah, please uh, check it out and stop by the forum if you have any questions. That'd be great.
0: Thank you. Great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.